James chapter 1. So a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to preach at our church camp down at Lake DeGray. And it won't surprise you that I preached from John's gospel, because y'all, most of y'all know my affinity for John. But I also just preached from one verse. And I told them at the camp, if you don't think I can preach an entire sermon from one verse, you've never been to North Bryant. So this morning, we're only going to focus on one verse of James's letter. And so if you'll turn there, you'll be ready for the one verse sermon uh, in James. But I also want this message to just serve as an introduction and an overview uh, to the whole series as we start, uh, start this journey through James's letter. James is perhaps the most misunderstood and most maligned book in the New Testament. Some look down their noses at James because they say that it lacks the theological or doctrinal depth that some other New Testament letters do. It's not Romans. It's not Ephesians. Well, while it is true that James is much more practical than it is doctrinal, that does not mean that there is no theological depth to James's teaching. There are plenty of deep truths in this letter that we'll see as we study through it together. Others have criticized this letter because there is a lack of, quote, evangelical fervor. And they say, James never even used the word gospel. Okay. James's main point may not have been mission work. But that doesn't mean that he was against witnessing. It doesn't mean that he's against uh, people being saved. That's just a little ridiculous. Many people, including the, the famous Martin Luther, have struggled with how to interpret James in light of the Apostle Paul's letters. Because James, if you read, if you read the letter, and I hope you will, James wrote about the importance of good works, especially in chapter 2. And yet we read so many of Paul's letters, and what is he focusing on? He's focusing on faith and grace. And so many have struggled to harmonize these two teachings. Luther called James's letter an epistle of straw, and he wanted to rip it out of the Bible. And we'll go a lot deeper into this when we get into chapter 2. But for now, please know that James and Paul do not disagree at all. All. There is no contradiction between the two. If we think a contradiction exists in the Word of God, it's our interpretation of it that is contrary, not the Word of God. James and Paul both believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But they both also believe that saving faith should produce works. Isn't that what we believe? And isn't that what the Bible teaches? James and Paul are not fighting against each other, like a lot of people have claimed. But they are men who are fighting back-to-back against different issues. Paul battled legalism and works-based salvation, which is why in his letters he did focus a lot of the times on the fact that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone. James, on the other hand, as we'll see going through the book and the things he teaches and deals with, he is battling against lazy and lawless Christianity. 
and what we may even call easy believism, which is why he focused so much on the fact that works should accompany and follow genuine saving faith. And I had this thought this week as I was studying some more that as Baptists, we should find the connection between Paul and James not only fascinating but important because how often do people say to us, you Baptists believe that since, since you can't lose your salvation, then you can just live however you want after you're saved and it doesn't matter. That's a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches. It's a misunderstanding of what we mean when we say uh, security of the believer, that salvation cannot be lost. Yes, salvation is so good that it can't be lost. Salvation is so secure that even you can't mess it up. And even I can't mess it up. But it absolutely matters how we live after we are saved. I've never heard a parent say, I'm just glad my child was born, but now I don't care what happens. Earthly parents care about the life of their child after he or she is born. Our Heavenly Father is the same way. The lives of His children matter to Him after their spiritual birth, after salvation. And James emphasized that aspect. And so I, I think as Baptists who, who believe the Bible teaches security to the believer, because it does, we should embrace this book as we learn more about the true relationship between faith and works. It should be important to us. James was one of, if not the very first New Testament letter that was written. It's not first in the way we group things together, but it was probably the very first book written in the New Testament possibly as early as just 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Think about that. That's, that's a relatively short amount of time. It was written during a time when the early Jewish Christians were being persecuted and they began to scatter away from Jerusalem and even outside of Palestine. And so that's going to be his audience. We'll talk more about it a little bit later. But since his audience that he's writing to are these early Jewish Christians... And since the letter was written so early, there's a distinct Jewish flavor to the letter. There's one time he uses the word synagogue. I think most translations translate it as assembly, but it's the word synagogue. He refers to around 22 books of the Old Testament throughout his writings, not necessarily um, quoting them or not necessarily... Uh, you know, using the word Genesis or Exodus, but making reference to stories from around 22 books in the Old Testament. He called Abraham our father, a very Jewish thing. And he even used the Old Testament term that we read so often, Lord of hosts, a very Old Testament term for God. And so James wrote his letter to teach this group of scattered Jewish Christians about how faith is tested and about how your faith should manifest itself in your daily life. James will convict you as he teaches that true faith must work. That genuine faith should inspire action. And if you think about the context of his audience, how important was it for those scattered and even persecuted believers to realize that and not let their faith lay dormant. 
So James writes a very practical letter. He does emphasize behavior over doctrine, which in a way sometimes makes it easy to apply because he basically makes the application for you. James is a very applicable and relevant letter. It's as relevant today as it was when he first wrote it because he deals with real, practical, ethical issues that we still face today. James will discuss the attitude that a Christian should have during trials. How many of you Christians out there have faced a trial? Pretty applicable then. He's going to discuss how we should respond to God's Word. Boy, don't you wish the whole world would read James then and, and learn how we should respond to the Word of God? He's going to talk about the, uh, and rebuke the sin of judging uh, uh, based off appearances. Well, we never do that anymore today. He's going to deal with people controlling their tongue, which again, we're, we're way past that now. No. He's going to deal with worldliness, with making plans without including God. He's going to talk about making oaths and prayer and so many things that are as applicable and relevant in 2019, Brian, Arkansas, as they were in Palestine and outside of Palestine in maybe 50 A.D. James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament because of just how practical it is. Others call James the Amos of the New Testament because he reminds you of an Old Testament prophet with his passion and with how many commands he gives. Read some of the Old Testament prophets. They're not afraid to tell you what to do. James is not afraid to tell you what to do. There are 108 verses in this letter. And in those 108 verses, there are 54 commands. If you're one of those people who says, I just need somebody to tell me what to do, then read James. 54 commands in 108 verses. That's quite a bit. I'm not very good at math, but I think I can figure out that ratio. A lot of these commands have to do with the way we live, righteous living. And because of that, I didn't plan this out, but it's going to be go right in line with what Brother Connor's getting into in his Sunday school lessons now. A lot of people say there are, there are many parallels between James and the Sermon on the Mount. And there are. There are many things that the two that James and Jesus talk about. One author says this, and this is a paraphrase, but he said that James said less about Jesus than any other New Testament author, but he sounded more like him than any other New Testament author, which I kind of like. Above all, there is a thread that runs throughout James's letter as he ex he's exhorting his readers who had faced trials and probably still were facing trials. He's exhorting them to have a living, active faith that works. Genuine faith should produce good works. And I'm going to ask you a question this morning. I want you to consider it this morning, but I don't want you to dismiss it after this morning. Okay? As we go through this letter, keep asking yourself this question. I'll try to remember to keep asking you this question. It'll resurface as we study through this letter. And here's the question. What is your faith doing? What is your faith doing? So let's read verse 1 of James. It's one of the shortest greetings in all of the New Testament letters. James, a servant of God and one of, uh, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. There are four men that we know of in the New Testament that are named James. But the James that wrote this letter is the James that we know to be the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And there's a couple of lists in the Gospels that give us the siblings of Jesus. Um, And James is mentioned first in both of those lists. So we tend to think that he was probably the next oldest. Jesus obviously being the oldest, but James probably next in line. And uh, there are two quick things I want to point out that support the fact that it was that James that wrote this letter. First of all, if you look in verse 1, you don't see any mention of being an apostle, right? Paul starts off his letters that way, right? Peter started off his letters that way. It's a very uh, common thing for someone who was an apostle to say, it's Paul an apostle. It's Peter an apostle. James doesn't say that here. And the reason that's important is that I mentioned there were four Jameses in the New Testament. Well, two of those men named James were apostles. So it seems pretty likely that if it was one of those two men writing it, they would probably mention their apostolic authority. This James doesn't do that. So that leaves us with that that fourth James. And if you notice, we aren't given any other details about James here. It just says, hey, it's James. I'm a servant. Well, that could have been any of the Jameses, right? They're all servants of God. And so this author feels that he does not have any need to further clarify who he is. What we would say in our language is that the author and the audience were on a first-name basis. When they said, oh, it's James writing to us, they knew exactly who that was without anything else uh, given to them. Well, the fourth James in the New Testament was not that well-known. And so if it was that fourth man, he would probably need to say a few more things about himself to help clarify his identity. And so James, who wrote this letter, being the half-brother of Jesus, fits what we know and what's described here perfectly. He was not an apostle, but he was widely known and well-respected enough in the early Christian world that if you just said, hey, James is writing to you, they would know who you're talking about. James quickly became a leader in the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts. Uh, Some writers even label him as the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He, He took the lead in Acts chapter 15, if you remember the story of the Jerusalem council where there was some discussion about Gentiles being saved. James is one that takes kind of the lead in some of that that counsel. And so we definitely know he's a leader there. So he wouldn't need any further introduction, especially when we think about this, that his audience may have been former church members underneath him. If he was the pastor in Jerusalem, and these are scattered Jewish Christians now, oh, it's, it's, it's Brother Penn writing to us. It's Brother Matt writing to us. It's Brother James writing to us. They, they knew the man because he was likely, at least at some point, some of their pastor, uh, some of them. And so, the author of this book is James, who is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And why do I say half-brother? Because Joseph the carpenter was only Jesus' earthly guardian. He was not Jesus' biological father. Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. It was a miracle. The Word, the eternal Word, became flesh. 
But after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had a normal life. They had a normal marriage. That is, they had children together. The Gospels are clear about that. Mary did not remain a virgin for the rest of her life as some groups propose. There are at least there are two lists in the Gospels of Joseph and Mary's children. But I want you to think about this for just a minute. Kind of put yourself in James's shoes. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your older brother? Really think about that for a minute. It may not be as amazing as you first think it would be. Jesus never gets in trouble. Jesus never messes up. Mom and Dad never get on to Jesus. Nothing's ever Jesus' fault. Sometimes we wonder what it would be like to be Mary and Joseph and, and be a parent to the perfect child, but what about being a sibling to the perfect child? It might be kind of tough, right? It was a, a uniquely strange thing to be a brother to the Son of God. And maybe growing up with Jesus and that sibling familiarity is what caused James and Jesus' other half-brothers not to believe in him during his earthly ministry. John wrote in John chapter 7 and verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. And that would include James. But James did become a believer sometime before Acts chapter 1 because he's mentioned as being a believer there, being with the disciples before the day of Pentecost. So what changed between boyhood and even Jesus' ministry and Acts chapter 1? What changed? Is there some big thing that would just make James become a believer all of a sudden? How about a resurrection? If it wasn't before the resurrection, sometime between John 7 and the resurrection, it could have been. But if it wasn't, it was definitely when Jesus was resurrected. The Apostle Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James. Specifically mentioned that. And so at least by then, if he wasn't convinced by then, that did it. And so James gave his life over in faith to his half-brother. The one he'd shared a bunk bed with growing up. The one he probably despised growing up because he could never be as good of a child as Jesus. But now he realized who Jesus truly was. And he gave his life to him. And James became a leader in the early church there in Jerusalem. He became known as a man of prayer. One historian said that James spent so much time in the temple kneeling down to pray that his knees looked like a camel. Have you ever seen the knees of a camel? They're kind of bumpy and lumpy and calloused and gross. Well, they said James prayed so much that's what his knees looked like. He became known as James the Just. And Josephus, the, the ancient Jewish historian, recorded that he in, uh, endured a martyr's death, that he was stoned to death by order of the high priest. So think about all of that. When you think about it, James had a lot to be proud of. He had a lot to brag about. He was respected. He was a leader. He's the half-brother of Jesus. But notice what he calls himself in verse 1. James, a servant. And really the English word servant is not a good translation here. 
Our word servant softens this up way too much. The Greek word here means slave. James, a slave. The ancient Greeks were a lot like us Americans. They valued freedom. They prized it. They would fight for it. And so slavery to them had a negative connotation, much like it does for us today. But for James, he wasn't thinking of what we think of uh, when we think of slavery. It was not an unwanted, obligatory, forced service under a cruel master. James wanted to be God's slave because God had set him free from sin, because God had saved his soul. It was voluntary slavery, which sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Voluntary slavery? But there's biblical precedent for that. In Exodus chapter 21, there's a part in the law of Moses that describes how when a slave reached a time period where he could be set free, if he wanted to, he could say, no, I'm good. And I want to stay with my master. I want to volunteer to be his slave forever. And he would be marked as that man's bond slave with a mark made through his ear. And that's no doubt the idea that James has here. He is a voluntary slave of God and of Jesus because being God's slave means that he's more free than he had ever been before. And if you think that's kind of odd, that it makes no sense, if you think that you can't have real freedom if there are any restrictions or any boundaries, then I would tell you to go take a fish from water to remove that restriction from him and see what happens. Take a fish out of water to set him free. What's going to happen to that fish? He'll die. Say, no, but I'm, I'm removing the restriction from him. No, you're not. You're killing him. A fish is only truly free when he's in the water because he's doing what he's made to do. And for us, we are only truly free when we are doing what we're made to do, which is worship and serve God. True freedom is found in serving Him. If you don't want to do that, you don't have to. It's not forced service. But you'll be like a fish out of water. You'll eventually suffocate. Serving this world and letting sin be your master will lead you to destruction. So you've got a master one way or the other. God can be your master, or sin can be your master. And if you say, no, I'm my own master, then sin's your master. Because you're arrogant, you're proud. You've already rejected God's leadership. James introduced himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think to me that is powerful, especially when you consider that James grew up with Jesus. But now the most important relationship between James and Jesus was not physical. It was not that they shared an earthly mother. It was not how many dinners they had together. It was not when they cleaned their rooms together. It was now the most important thing to James was his spiritual relationship to Christ. I am now his slave. I'm a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Greek... 
this phrase of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ actually comes before the word slave, which emphasizes the masters over the slave. It's not about who James is. It's about who God is and about who Jesus is. James is not using false humility here saying, I'm such a great servant, I'll call myself a slave. No, he emphasizes who the masters are, not who he is. And we need that reminder in our lives, especially those who lead others, who teach others, and who have influence over others. Any leader who sees himself as more important than God is not fit to lead God's people. What slave would consider himself or herself greater than the master that he or she serves? James didn't. It's not about him. He is just a humble slave. Writing to God's people that he labels as the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. I mentioned this earlier. James's audience is not one single church. It's not a household. It's not one person, but a more general letter written to his fellow Jews, which is why you see the label 12 tribes here. But these Jews had accepted Christ. They'd accepted Jesus as the Christ. And then they were scattered by persecution outside of Palestine. And James is writing to these people. And it is interesting for me to wonder how many of these people who read this letter would have had James as their former pastor. How maybe excited they were to hear from him, especially going through a tough time, especially you know, being scattered away from their home and enduring some persecution. It's from James. But even though there was this relationship and connection between them and James, at least some of them, boy, he just gave a short greeting, didn't he? Just a one-word salutation. Greeting. But before you jump all over James for not being friendly, or before you get on to him for not being as flowery and as theological as Paul, you know, may the grace and peace of God our Father be with you, and we, we thank God upon every remembrance of you. And Boy, Paul can get into some introductions, right? James just says, hey, greeting. He wasn't being rude. This was a perfectly acceptable greeting during the day. In fact, the word actually means rejoice. It comes from the word rejoice. So he's not being mean or rude. But the fact that it was so short is going to allow James immediately to jump into the very first thing he wants to teach. And that goes back to his prophet-like passion. He, he doesn't need flowery introductions. He needs to say what the Lord has laid on his heart. Because it's important. God has important things to say through him. There's no beating around the bush. James is ready to go. James, a servant of God, a slave of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, now let's go. I'd like to challenge each of you this week to read the letter of James at least two times while we prepare to go through this study together. If you've got different translations, read it in both. Read it in, read it in multiple translations. It's not that long of a letter, right? It won't take you forever. You should be reading the Word of God anyway. Read it. Pray about it. It'll help you prepare your heart for our study together. And I want you to be thinking about that question that I proposed earlier. What is your faith doing? I want to close this morning by, by going one step further and asking you another question. Are you his slave?
Are you a slave of God and of Christ? Now that begins with salvation. Salvation is the deepest and most important decision that you will ever make, yet it is so simple. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for you and was resurrected for you. And if you will repent of your sins and trust in Him and what He did for you, then He will save you. Repentance and faith. James and Paul both teach that and believe that. Christ wants to save you. He loves you. He died to set you free from sin and the destructive path that it will lead you down. If you need Christ, turn to Him today. I know many here have done that, but I'll ask you the same question. Are you the Lord's slave? Do you ever even think of yourself like that? James did. How would it change your life if you started thinking of yourself like that? Is that I'm, I'm someone else's. I'm his slave. What if it was a complete surrender? Would your faith work more if that was your mindset? Do you wake up every morning and voluntarily hand over your will, your desires, your life to him? knowing that you are only truly free if you're doing what you were made to do, which is serve Him and worship Him. If you are saved, then He set you free from sin's dominion. He's rescued you from hell. He forgave you. He gave you eternal life. Why would you not want to volunteer and sign up to be a slave of a master that powerful and that great and that loving? You're free. But I don't want to be. I want to be yours. And then you are truly free. James was Jesus' earthly sibling, and yet he didn't even mention that because his spiritual relationship mattered more to him and was more important and more meaningful than any other physical relationship, even between him and Jesus. If you understand that your spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important in your life, then guess what will happen to other physical relationships? They will all improve. And I don't mean that you won't ever have any problems. I don't mean anything like that. But if you're right with God, then you'll be a better husband or a better wife than if you're not. If you're right with God, you'll be a better uh, son or daughter, a better sibling, a better coworker, a better friend, you name it. I've said this before. I'll probably say it again. Put God first and nobody comes second. So let's stand this morning. Are you the Lord's slave? And what is your faith doing? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much uh, for this time that we could meet together to look into your word and sing praises to your name and worship you. God, we pray for anyone here today who needs to make a decision to trust you as their Savior. We know that you can deliver them, and we pray for them. And Lord, those who have, Lord, we pray that we'll have the mindset of James to be voluntarily poured out for your will, Lord. We, we cannot fathom how much you love us and what you did for us. But Lord, help us to live our lives 
serving you out of love and truth and peace and joy. Help us as we study through this letter together to grow uh, with one another, to become better servants of you, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.